I think you won't be surprised today that we are talking about God, our favorite subject, talking about God, but here is where it gets challenging in the uh, aspects of God that we're, we're talking about in that uh, this is kind of a head-scratching kind of subject we have before us today. We know that the disciples were uh, scratching their heads, presumably. They were confused, and uh, what was happening is in the upper room, Thomas and Philip ask Jesus questions, and Jesus takes the answer to those questions and dives into the nature of the Trinity and the nature of the relationships within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so we are talking about the Godhead today, and I ran across this uh, statement, maybe you've heard it before, regarding the Trinity. Try to understand it, and you will lose your mind. Try to deny it, and you will lose your soul. And we don't want to lose our soul, uh, so we are going to lose our minds instead today. Ironically, last week I had somebody between or after the services that came up to me and said, I have a question. Do you have to believe in the Trinity to be saved? Now that's an interesting question. You might think about how you would answer that. And I'm going to tell you my answer to that later in the message. I'm just priming it there, so I'm just going to set it right there. We'll come back to that here in a little bit. So we are back in the upper room, and we find the disciples bewildered by what Jesus has done and what he has said. They're bewildered by him washing their feet. He is the rabbi, he is their leader, and yet there he is crawling around on the floor washing their feet. The disciples are bewildered by what he said, including the things that we have before us today, and realize that Jesus made these statements to them. They had like seconds to think about what he meant by that and give a response. We've had two millennia to ponder and to think about what Jesus meant, so advantage us. But realize the disciples didn't have all these years of church history and theology and all the things that we have definitely are advantage. They're just there in the room having a meal and Jesus is laying serious theology on them. I think you'll get what I mean here in just a moment. So the Trinity, for 2,000 years we have scratched our heads about it, tried to understand it. This sermon is not going to resolve all of the issues. And if I get done here and you're like, I didn't understand that at all, I didn't get your sermon at all, I'll say, there was a good sermon then. Uh, I've preached it well, if I confuse you. So the questions that they are asking are, Jesus, where are you going? He said he's going somewhere. How do we get there? And will you please show us the Father? Okay, those are the questions. Here's the text. And I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning of John 14. Okay, we've been working through this here for a little while. But uh, always good to just get the flow of the whole thing. So John 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And now we're into the fresh text. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, sorry, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me, any, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now that last little section is on prayer. There's more on prayer to come in the upper room. I'm gonna just, we're gonna set that aside and maybe come back to it later in the series. We're gonna focus on the, on the other verses here. And as I was studying and preparing and thinking about how to teach what Jesus is saying here, I spied a helpful clue. And if you look at the text, you'll notice that in the English, there are a lot of W's, okay? A lot of W's. And in a way, my theme in this whole message is going to be W. I'm going to annoy you with W's in this sermon. Hopefully, this will be something that uh, will catch with you. Now, the, the, this was written in uh, first century Greek. There is no W in Greek. This is an English thing. But I think it's a helpful little teaching tool, and so I'm going to work it over exhaustively here in this sermon. To speak of W, have you thought about the letter W? What a majestic letter W is. I am blessed to have a W in my name. And not only do I have a W in my name, because I am of the Dutch uh, ethnicity, the W is capitalized in my name, which is kind of cool when you think about it. And if you look at my name, you're like, man, I wish I had a name like that with a capital letter, especially a capital W. You might want to think about marrying a Dutchman because the Dutch often capitalize strangely letters that are not the first letter of their name. So D wit, capital D, lowercase E, capital W, I T T. So cool. So cool. Now, with that said, if you go back to chapter 14, notice that in verses 1 through 3, they are all about where Jesus is going. And as we saw, he is going to the cross. He is making a way to the Father. Thomas says, how do we know how to get there? Which is the second W, that Jesus is the way to the Father, the only way for sinners. The core of our text here has to do with who, which I might add also begins with a W. Who is 
Jesus. And Jesus says that he is of the same nature as God the Father. And then we come to find out that the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus, did you hear the W's? Are actually the same as the words of the Father and the works of the Father. I just think all these W's, is, it's wonderful. Okay? There's more to come, okay? There's more to come. So I'm making it easy if you're taking notes today. Uh, just put W's down the left side, okay? Because we're just going to be filling in W's all the way through here. And we begin with what he starts with, Jesus that is, and that is, who is he? Who is Jesus? Look at verse 7. This very, uh, I don't know, kind of puzzling statement. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, Jesus is going to say here that if you've known the Father, if you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, our temptation here is going to be to see this in the kind of language that we often use when we meet a dad and a son or a mother and a daughter, or it can go, you know, interchange in there. We tend to view this as a resemblance. We'll even say that, won't we? You meet somebody, you see the kids, and you're like, oh, he, he favors his father, doesn't he? Or she favors her, her mother. We see a resemblance. Sometimes you might even see the way that the son or the daughter walks or carries themselves, and you're like, that looks a lot like mom, or that looks a lot like, like dad. In fact, it's uncanny how much uh, kids resemble their parents. Now, perhaps for you, this is a troubling thing as you think about your own self and you realize that we're all in the process of just becoming our parents, basically. Uh, and so um, that's not the point of this sermon, but it could be the most troubling aspect of the sermon for you. So we might look at this and say, okay, Jesus is saying that he's the Father, I'm the Son. I resemble the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen my dad. Like, if you know me, it's kind of like you know my dad, because I resemble my dad so much. And if we were to say that, we would be wrong. Now, wrong sounds like it starts with an R, <laughs> but it actually starts with a W. I hope you appreciate all of this, you would be wrong, okay? He is not saying, I resemble my father. What he is saying is much more profound than that. So here comes Philip now, okay? Philip, who you may not be familiar with Philip, he's not really one of the best known disciples, especially in the gospels. He says like a couple things, this is one of them. He's probably most famous in Acts for evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch. If you know that story, you can look ahead to that if you would like. That's Philip's shining moment. Not a lot known about Philip, but here he very boldly speaks up in the upper room. In verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, the, the NLT gives the sense of this where it translates it, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Now, I think that little statement, if you're reading your devotions uh, 
during the week, you could very easily see that and sort of quickly slide by it and not realize what Philip is actually asking Jesus to do here. What does Philip think will satisfy the longings of his heart? We want to see God. Show us God, and that'll be enough for us. No small request, Jesus. And if you know your Old Testament history here, then you also know that this is a, an impossible request. We go into the Old Testament, and God makes it clear that human beings cannot visibly see the essence and the glory of God. We can't handle it. You say, well, where does the Bible talk about that? Well, here's a good example would be Moses. Okay, so last spring we studied Moses. I'm sure you're all very still Moses conscious, you know, from that series. You might remember that Moses, there at Mount Sinai, wants to see God. He's been talking with him, but apparently he's not actually visibly seeing him. Maybe seen his Shekinah glory, but has not actually seen essential God. And so he makes the request. Here's what it says. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And if you know the story, somehow mysteriously God's goodness and presence passed by Moses, he couldn't see it at that moment, but somehow saw the backside of God. And by the way, you realize that God is a spirit, so whenever we talk about the face of God or the loving arms of God, these are known as anthropomorphisms, okay? This is how God helps us understand what he is like. He describes himself in human terms, but God does not have arms. He does not have a face, Thomas asked Jesus how to get to God. Philip asked Jesus to see God. And both of these questions reflect the deepest longings of the human heart. They both reflect what all religions of the world try to provide to us. How do I get to God? How do I behold God? A lost humanity wants to be restored to its creator. And that includes you, by the way. You might think you're, what you need is lunch or a snack or sleep, but what you actually long for in the soul of your being is you want to be reconciled with your creator. You want to see God, okay? And so we see in the questions here, these aren't just random. These are... These are true to the longings of the human heart. In a way, they both speak for all of us, okay? They speak for all of us, and they ask Jesus the deepest troubling questions of our heart. We long for closeness and intimacy. We want to know the way to God. And so you would expect that Jesus would say, finally, we're on a level. I've been waiting three years to be able to talk with you about this. But that's not how Jesus responds. Look at verse nine. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? When I was in seminary, I had a professor that whenever a student would ask a dumb question, he would throw chalk at him. And I may or may not have dodged uh, a little chalk in my time with this particular professor. Uh, but it's, it's almost like Jesus does that here. He like throws chalk at Philip, like, really? You're gonna ask me that question? You've been with me all this time and you still don't realize who I am? This challenging statement, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I want you to think about this with me. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And where we are right now is at the epicenter of Trinitarian doctrine. The Christian belief that God is a unity, there is only one God, but that within that one God, mysteriously, there is a plurality. There are three persons within the one Godhead, each one distinct, Father, Son, and Spirit, yet mysteriously, eternally, united together in a oneness that is so absolute that we rightly say there's only one God. We are not polytheists. We are monotheists. There's only one God. And yet there's three in the one. You get that? I don't either. But to be clear, here is the math, just to lay it out. Here's the math of the Trinity. One plus one plus one equals one. Now kids, do not take this math to school. You're gonna flunk if you take this kind of math to school. And we see here though that doctrinally Philip is flunking. Jesus says, you're not getting it here. You do not realize who I am. In what way? In what way does Philip not realize who Jesus is? And I would say it's certainly not on the humanity side. Why? I would say having a human being wash your feet, feeling his fingers on your toes, the towel on your foot, being in proximity to him like that, has a way of you sort of getting the humanity side of Jesus. So helpful. Certainly human, To say it this way, Philip's Christology was solid on the humanity side. What he fails to realize is the point that Jesus is admonishing him about, which is that Jesus is in such unity with God the Father, it allows Jesus to say, if you've seen me, you've seen him. If you know me, you know him. And earlier in John, Jesus says it, just puts it right out there. This is John 10. Uh, And he says this, and they want to assassinate him. Jesus says this, I and the Father are one. Okay, one plus one equals one? (laughs) I and the Father are one. And the Jews who are, you know, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, is the foundational truth. That's their John 3.16, I had somebody tell me once. 
They couldn't handle the thought that maybe somehow, what do you mean you and the Father are one? You're here, he's there. One plus one equals one. Get him. And they picked up stones to, to kill Jesus. And Philip can't get it either. Like, he just is, what are you talking about? He doesn't realize that the one who is reclining at that dinner table with him is God himself. Now, the reason that John includes this and the other gospel writers don't is that it fits into John's overall mission, which is to convince anybody that reads John that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of the world. And to get the fact that he is God, united with God, and God himself fits into the overall theme of John. We see this at the beginning of his gospel. Here's John 1.14. And the word, code for Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's he saying there? Something very special about this one who has come, the Son of God. Verse 18, chapter one, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him, who? The Father, known. And so you read the John and you read through the, the rest of the New Testament and the writers are over and over trying to convince us that this Jesus was God, okay? Was God. Colossians 2, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here, and for most of you, I don't have to convince you that Jesus is, is God, that he is the, the son of God. That's what got you out of bed today and got you here. We are not just worshiping a great leader or hero. We are worshiping God himself, Jesus. But what I want to do today is to help you realize the gravity of this truth. To quote one guy, if you have not seen God in him, you have not got to the heart of the mystery. The knowledge of Christ, which stops with the man and the martyr and the teacher and the beautiful gentle brother, is knowledge so partial that even he cannot venture to call it other than ignorance. Speaking of Philip, what does that mean? We live in a world, all the religions of the world admire Jesus. Probably your neighbors admire Jesus in one way or the other. There are many churches who preach a kind of Jesus where he is an inspiring figure. He is a great moral teacher. He is a, a, a leader and lover of humanity. He died on the cross to show us what love is. And on and on they go. The world quotes Jesus extensively, but they don't bow to him. They, they don't realize who he actually is, God himself. And how many people are going to miss the saving gospel of Jesus, not because they miss the fact that he was human, but like Philip, they miss the fact that he is God, one with the Father, such that if you know Jesus, you know the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He is God himself. 
So today I can say, I'm sure you think Jesus to be unique, remarkable, a wonderful person, a great teacher. But the test is this. When you perceive Jesus, do you in your soul perceive God in flesh? And the difference between those two is heaven and hell. So W, who is Jesus? One with the Father. Jesus goes on now to talk about the words of Jesus are actually the words of the Father. And the works of Jesus are the works of the Father. Look at verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, that's a lot of W's. Did you catch that, everybody? I didn't write the Bible. The Holy Spirit did, okay? And those W's in the English are, they're all over the place in this text. Who is Jesus? One with the Father. The words and the works of Jesus. One thing is you read through John that John often does quoting Jesus is he uses the miracles of Jesus as self-authenticating of the claims to deity that Jesus makes. So he, you know, he says, I'm the, you know, the bread of life, and then he feeds the 5,000, and I'm the resurrection of the life, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. There is this connection between the claims of Jesus and the works of Jesus, the words of Jesus and, and the works of Jesus. And here Jesus says it a little differently. He says, my words flow from my oneness with the Father. My works and miracles flow from my oneness with the Father, such that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And this is confusing, I know. The theologians, when they talk about this, they talk about the economy of the Trinity, okay? This is not a matter of like goods and, and services rendered. It is more, how does the Trinity relate to itself? How does the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, how do they, how do they function within the Godhead? And Jesus gives us some glimpse into that here. And what he is emphasizing is the oneness of the Trinity. And that means that every member of the Trinity does not act independent of the other members of the Trinity. It's not like the father does this one thing all by himself or one day goes, you know what, I think I'm gonna, no. They are in such unity that what they do, they, they do together. It just comes to me, I don't know if this is good theology, but the three musketeers were you know, all for one and one for all. What we do, we do it together. We all have a part in this. He describes this elsewhere. This is John 5. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Now I'm gonna pause right here for a moment and ask you, what are you thinking about right now? I want you to honestly look into your brain, what are you thinking about right now? Because the temptation is going to be, at this point, for you to check out and to say, this is all confusing, 
I want to think about something else. And you're thinking about the rest of your day. You're thinking about your week. And what I want you to realize, what we're talking about here, heaven itself marvels at. The angels long to look into and to understand what we're talking about. You may never hear another teaching or sermon from John 14 ever again in your life. This is your one shot to understand the God that you love. So dial in with me here. It's gonna be worth it, okay? It's gonna be worth it. Here uh, now, we see that seeing and knowing Jesus is seeing and knowing the Father. The oneness that Jesus has with the Father is such that when he speaks, it is perfectly aligned with the will of the Father. So that what he says, in a way, is what the Father is saying. The miracles he does and the works that he does are so perfectly unified, aligned with the will of the Father, that when he raised Lazarus from the dead, that was, in a sense, a miracle that the Father did. They are in absolute unity with one another. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Continuing the W theme, what will we do? What will we do? I count three W's there, by the way. Somebody, I should have said, at the beginning of the sermon, I dare somebody here to keep track of all the W's, and I have a prize uh, afterwards, some free coffee for you <laughs> afterwards, if you get the number right. So what will we do? This is a challenging statement that Jesus makes, because he says, you're going to do greater things than I do. Have you ever read that and wondered? I'm not sure I've ever done anything greater than what Jesus did. What is he talking about here? And I was actually happy to study this this week because I've been curious as to what that meant as well. And i got to go quickly here, but don't take this to mean that you and I are going to do more spectacular miracles than Jesus did. Because... I can't even imagine something more spectacular than what Jesus did. If you think about the miracles that he did, he is not saying that our, what we will do is greater than what he did in isolation. What he is saying here is that after he ascends to the Father, you disciples, what you are going to do and through you, what the church is going to do around the world is greater than in scope and scale, than any singular miracle that I have done. You say, well, how, how is what we're doing greater? Well, what are we doing? We are making disciples of all nations. We are sharing the gospel, the saving message of Jesus Christ to absolutely as many people as we possibly can. This ministry that we are doing is personal, it is corporate, and it is global. All nations. And we're on mission for that. So the scale of what the disciples and us as well will do is far greater. I mean, what, what is greater, seeing a blind man see or seeing South America reach with the gospel? 
What is greater, calming a storm or millions of Chinese currently coming to faith in Jesus Christ? And what Jesus is saying, in terms of eternal significance, the blind man's gonna die and he ain't gonna see anymore. And the storm is, there's another storm coming, okay? All these miracles are temporal, but what you are going to do with the gospel is global and it is eternal and we all get to be a part of it. Okay, back to the Trinity. If you've been in church very long, you know there's lots of illustrations that people attempt to explain the Trinity. You've probably heard some of these. The Trinity is like an egg. One egg, shell, white, yolk. Okay. Maybe that's helpful. The Trinity is like water. Liquid, ice, snow. Which is in the forecast this week, I might add. I'm going to attempt to illustrate what Jesus is saying here. And I'm admitting on the front end, this is a little bit hokey. But I have found that sometimes the hokey ones are the ones that stick with people. Okay? And it comes back to the letter W. I warned you at the beginning. Okay, back to the letter W. So, what is a W? A W is two U's united together in one. That's why it's called a double U. I just enlightened some of some of you right there. You've never thought about that. Okay, a double U. It is two U's in, in one. Now, you can stack the U's, and technically you still have a double U. There's two U's here, but you only see one U. But there's actually two U's. And part of the reason you only see one U is that these two U's are exactly the same. But a W is not them stacked, a W is these two U's in unity and yet distinct. Okay? This is a U. This is a W. Camera people, can you make a good close-up on that? It's very important. I don't want anybody confused here. Okay? Nobody confused. In fact, you could say this about these two U's. They're so much the same. If you've seen one, you've seen the other. They are exactly the same. A W is not two U's stacked, but again, two U's that are united, yet they are distinct. If you separate them, you no longer have a W. You have two U's. Polytheism. Okay. But if you combine them, if you unite, unite them, they must be together in this way, but they must be distinct. Not this. But this. So if you want to understand world religions, one way is to do it this way. This is Judaism. This is Christianity. Okay? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. For God sent the, his son into the world to save the world. Two. Okay? Now some of you, smarty pants, are going, now wait a second. 
there are three members of the Godhead. And this is where this is a terrible illustration. And that is why at Hobby Lobby, I bought a third <laughs> you. Because if you want to understand what Christian doctrine is, it is, it is essentially, it is, it is that right there, okay? They all share the same nature. They are all in unity, but they have to be distinct because they are each an individual person, okay? So if you've seen the Father, you've seen the Son, in some senses you've seen the Spirit as well. But we baptize in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Three in one, a unity in plurality, which leads to my final W. Wow. And do you notice that there's two W's in wow? I'm just piling it on here. I hope that you get this. Because the Trinity blows our minds. It blows our minds. In fact, if you think you understand it, you're probably a heretic. If it blows your mind, you're likely a Christian. Or to say it this way, as one commentator, we must always remember that God is bigger than our formulations and we will never pour the ocean of God's truth into the teacups of our minds or completely encapsulate truth in our neat little formulations about God. He's bigger than we even realize. He blows our minds. Which leads me now to the question that I got last week. And the question was, do you have to believe in the Trinity to be a Christian? And my answer to that would be yes and kind of no. And let me explain what I mean by that. When I became a Christian, I was around six years old as a boy. How deep was my Trinitarian theology at that point? Not very deep. I kind of understood that God sent Jesus, sort of a John 3.16 basic understanding and I trust and believe, I look back to that as the time where I passed from death to life, where I was regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's when I was saved. Not much of a trinity, but at least the little I had, I had it right. You can just have a little bit of trinity, and you can have it right. And in that way, I say, kind of no. But at the same time, if you come to a reasoned understanding of the claims of Christianity and the teachings like this one before us today, and you look at that and you say, I do not believe in the Trinity, or you collapse the Trinity into a modalism, a oneness, the Father is Jesus and Jesus is Jesus and the Spirit is Jesus, or some other form of non-Trinitarian doctrine, then I would say that you have so changed, by changing the Trinity, you've changed the gospel into a gospel that doesn't save anymore. And so in that way, I would say, yes, you must believe in the Trinity. Now I leave the final decision to who God saves up to God, but there is no better gospel than to believe that God the Father sent Jesus, God the Son, to die for sinners who believe and trust in him 
and the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates and applies the saving benefits of Jesus' work on the cross to all who trust and believe in him. That's the best and the right gospel. Not a W, a triple U. So wow, 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 wow. Amen.